0: CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info.
1: <clears throat> Welcome to Political Rewind. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Bill Nigut. Uh We've got a great show, I hope. Lined up for you got great subjects and a good panel. How can you go wrong? Lots to talk about. That's Greg Bluestein. He's here. He's the political reporter for the Atlanta Journal Constitution. His colleague Tamar Hallerman is in Washington up on the hill today. She joins us as well. Hi, Tamar. Hi okay. guys. Uh you've uh, got a couple stories that you've been filing that we're gonna get to today, so thank you for being with us. Theron Johnson, Democratic political consultant, strategist, um the owner founder of paramount consulting and you're about to celebrate a big anniversary
2: two years yeah so thank you so much bill
1: i think uh we're gonna get your microphone uh there's a problem with theron's microphone try it again theron two years not yet all right we'll get it straightened out uh sam olins is uh, also with us, former attorney general of the state of georgia uh, and, and uh, longtime chair of the cobb county Commission. Hi, Sam. How are you? Good afternoon, sir. Is it okay for me to say that you've just come back from a really fascinating family vacation? Yeah, everyone takes their
3: family to China. Yeah, you were in China for like how long? <laughs> About nine days. Nine? Wow. It's
1: wow. what happens when your oldest daughter speaks Mandarin. Sam's oldest daughter has lived in China. I mean, she would have been the best, best tour guide you could have. She was. Yeah, she's great. Lauren is great. Uh, now, Theron, I think your microphone is working. Paramount Consulting. How many
2: years? Two years. Two years old. Congratulations. So it will be the Democrat on the panel that has microphone problems. You know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you, know, you, know. You, you cannot. Know, win I'll, win I'll win share better. with you. you always fighting else. for the little guy. You know, the little guy. We're always fighting for the little guy. Uh,
1: before we get into uh, the issues uh, on the table today, let me just uh, very quickly thank all of you who came to Cartersville, to the Grand Theater in Cartersville Monday night. I mean, we had virtually a full house. You were unbelievably enthusiastic. It was wonderful to hear you tell us how much, how devoted you are to Political Rewind. And I think we had a terrific discussion. Just a final thanks to uh, the great, great crew up there at the Grand uh, Theater who helped us make that show a success. And, um... Again, our thanks to all of you for turning out in Carter'sville. We're going to be announcing more remotes that we'll be doing as the year goes on, and uh, always like taking the show out on the road. All right. That said, let's start. Greg Bluestein. I know this isn't a piece you filed, but 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 I think you know the piece. And tomorrow, I think you actually contributed to it. But Greg, why don't you start us off? The today we have federal officials. We are told down at Fort Benning, Mm -hmm. where they are looking at whether Benning would be a good place to bring children who have come into the country on their own and have been uh, picked up by immigration authorities, and and should they be housed over at Fort Benning?
4: Yeah, it's one of three different uh, installations across the country that are being considered for for this and officials um, from washington are preparing to tour what they call unused property it's a giant military installation so there's lots of place there's lots of parts of it that, that are underused or, or unused so looking at that and um, there's a lot of questions we still have not even come close to answer including how many children if they do select it could, could even be housed there
1: Tamar is. Um, it's interesting that Theresa Tomlinson, the one Democrat who's announced for U.S. Senate, for David Perdue's U.S. Senate seat, and of course is the former mayor of Columbus, she's weighed in. Uh, she knows Fort Benning well, given her time as mayor down there. And she's weighed in and said, uh, basically praised the choice, saying, I know the people at Fort Benning. They would be wonderful stewards, they would take great care of the children who come their way. That's a smart thing to say politically, but it's sure to bring with it controversy over the whole issue of the United States government uh, having children essentially in custody, yes?
0: Yeah, exactly, and and of course, Temper's is flair when it comes to anything with, with immigration and, and people who have come across the, the southern border seeking asylum. Um, but but it's, it's good to think about what the alternatives are going to be. You know, you've heard from Trump administration officials who say that they've been completely um, stretched thin by the, the number of border crossers um, from Mexico. And when you see, you know, what, what kids were being housed in before, the tent cities and down in Texas... Um, you know, you can see why some people think, okay, well, if the government has to take care of these kids before they can be handed over to a sponsor, um, maybe this isn't the worst idea.
1: Sam, you were concerned because both the AJC and me, in the note that I sent out to everybody about talking about this issue, used the term apprehended in regard to these children. Why is that a wrong word? And what do we say about them?
3: Well, I thought it was interesting. Uh, a poor choice by the by the paper. Apprehension generally relates to uh, someone subject to being arrested. So in this politically correct world where people can't decide between the term undocumented and illegal, the AJC in their story used the word that would be associated with illegal, that being a crime. And it, it's a really uh, sad situation, no matter which side of the I'll, you're on because these are minor children that their parents are choosing to go hundreds of miles to start a whole new life with no assurance of safety. And the U.S. government is really in, in the untenable position where you're trying to protect these children and help them from this terrible plight.
1: Theron, should we want to have this problem brought to our doorstep?
2: Well, I think it's not necessarily um, do we want it brought to our doorstep, um, Bill. It's here. I mean, I think the one thing that Democrats and Republicans can agree on is that we have ongoing challenges of sustainability at our borders. And so when we know that in this country we literally have undocumented children dying in our custody because there's a failure by the government to allocate the resources needed to take care of them, this is something that I think is also going to shape the two thousand twenty US Senate race because now you got Teresa Tomlinson if you just talked about Bill in her backyard, whether it's gonna be as Sam just talked about, they're being apprehended or they're just basically having a uh, you know, a welcoming area, a welcoming city that will give them an opportunity towards a path towards citizenship. I mean she's gotta be kinda careful about how what her message is on that. And I and I would suspect that you're gonna see one of her possible opponents use this as an opportunity to really kind of put a stake in the ground on this illegal immigration conversation in Georgia. But I think it's here, Bill, and I think that Fort Benning is going to look at this very closely and if it's something that they want to do, I think they're going to make sure that it's done correctly.
1: It it turns out, Greg, that um, the Office of Refugee Resettlement has received referrals for about 41,000 children this fiscal year alone Uh, an increase of like 50 percent over the previous year and so it's interesting about this you know we we could see some of these young people going to Fort Benning I assume there will be folks who will protest down there not against the children obviously but against the the policies of the administration which insists on detaining people when they cross the border uh, in circumstances that are not of the choosing of the the people they they bring in um but um, it, it, whether you're a Trump supporter or whether you don't like his policies, Theron just said it. This is an unbelievably difficult problem. It is a crisis at the border, if nothing else, a humanitarian crisis.
4: It is. And, and, and as Theron said, it's not, it's not going away. And it will help shape the 2020 election. It will be an issue in the presidential race and in Senate races here. And, and odds are it will continue to be a, an issue long after that, too. And. And, uh, you know, Theron mentioned how it could become a Democratic issue, too. Well, Tamar, you caught up with Senator Perdue um, and he 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 sounded pretty unaware of what was happening and what could possibly be happening in Fort Benning
0: yeah i mean and this was breaking news yesterday Mm -hmm. so you know we had just heard word hours before the visit that this was occurring and 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 yeah so folks did not seem to really know too much about it and and like you mentioned there are a couple sites still in the running so maybe we'll hear a little more as as those agencies get closer to a decision but still a lot of landmines for politicians as they decide how they want to weigh in
3: so the democrats don't skate through this issue i'm just looking at a brand new article uh Talking about the HHS issue here, you know, they hand the children over to ORR, uh, refugee resettlements. And Henry Cuellar, a Democrat congressman from Texas, is quoted as saying, we've got to convince our more progressive friends that this is not ICE. This is not deportation. This is to take care of kids. Congress can't pass the damn bill to take care of these children. This should not be a partisan issue. This ought to be a quick vote to give the appropriate funding to properly take care of these kids.
1: Yeah, and, and yet, there, and it's become so terribly partisan. And part of the problem is the progression of the kind of immigration we're seeing. We started primarily with men, fathers coming in on their own to find work to send money back to Mexico. Then it became families, that's most recent. And now the, the fact that there are children coming, trying to cross the border on their own is, is truly truly a horrible thing to contemplate
2: absolutely and and it's really to me you know these are unaccompanied children and as you pointed out bill uh started off as men but now you know families that are coming here and then once they cross over then there there lies the challenge which sam just outlined now i want to be clear i'm trying to be you know as bipartisan as i can be on this but Democrats, for now up to two years, have been trying to pass a bill, even when they were not in Congress. I mean, in charge in Congress. And remember, there was a lot of negotiation going on with the president. And so this is one of the reasons why, when you do polling and you ask the the uh, voters in Georgia, how do they feel about the direction of Washington? How do they feel about their congresswoman or their congressman? This is why these folks poll a lot of times under seventy-five percent, some even under fifty, because. The federal government has got to get their act together to basically empower the states to be able to deal with these these issues. So, listen, I think that if Fort Benning is chosen as a site, um, you just laid it out, Bill. I mean, not only are we going to see protests, I mean, you're going to see people who are there supporting this effort, but you're going to see the right conservative wing of the Republican Party in Georgia. I believe mostly Trump supporters come out in droves to, to basically protest against this.
1: Another issue for, as Greg pointed out, for the 2020 election cycle. Let, let's move on uh, to something that tomorrow you just uh, filed a story that appears at ajc.com. Um, we, we know as of yesterday, Mitch McConnell, uh, during a scrum on the Hill said uh, that there were many republicans who were not happy with the president's decision to impose five percent tariffs on mexico initially uh, because uh, he feels or not the government isn't doing enough to stop Immigration across the southern, our southern border. He thinks they should stop it at their southern border. We know that uh, Vice President Pence is meeting today with uh, highest ranking. I think President of is it the President of Mexico who's in on the Hill today, tomorrow. Certainly high government officials of the Mexican government to see if they can come to some conclusion about this. Uh, so while there seem to be a lot of Republicans who at least say they will uh, vote against the president imposing these five percent. Tariffs starting next week. Monday is the date they're supposed to start. You went out and talked to Georgia members of the, Congre- of the Republican delegation. What would you learn?
0: Yeah, that, that there isn't an appetite among most of them to rebuke the president on this, even though many of them are free traders who don't like tariffs. Um, You know, a lot of them mentioned to me that they see this as an immigration issue. So they they think because Congress hasn't been able to agree on a way to stop it, that the president is taking, uh, you know, a needed action to take care of that and, and get... Um, more help from Mexico. The one lawmaker who did have really strong words to say on the Republican side was, was Johnny Isakson, um, and he, he really has been among the state's most vocal Republicans uh, specifically on this issue of trade.
1: You know, Theron, uh, what's interesting about this, and then I'll give everybody else a chance to weigh in, uh, David Perdue, once again, David yeah. Perdue was given a chance to uh, be quoted. Did you, did you reach out to Perdue? Was it, was it you who talked to him about this uh, tomorrow? Just to be sure. Okay. Yeah, last night. Okay. So he, Theron, told Tamar that uh, he supports the president on this because we have to level the playing field in terms of trade. Well, I was surprised by that comment because to the best of my knowledge, this hasn't you know, the, the White House is trying to make the point this has nothing to do with the new Mexican Canadian trade accord. This is strictly punitive. I was a little surprised that the direction Purdue took this.
2: Well, it's interesting because this is the first, maybe second time that Senator Perdue has been maybe perceived as being off message from the president. I mean, he has been a staunch ally of this president. But let's go back to Johnny Isaacson for a second. I want to read his quote tomorrow in, in your article. And I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, but he said, "I will work with the president to do anything I can to help him get out of this trade situation." But the thing that really <laughs> struck me, he said, "But if, we're, if we, but if we're just going to pop around like a June, June bug, bag. that's something that my granddaddy would yeah. say." <laughs> and, and it's so fitting for for Georgia politics, we're not getting anything accomplished, <clears throat> and it's starting to show. To me, you got two senators in Georgia that are on opposite sides of this issue. While Senator Isaacson continues to be the statesman that he is and not necessarily come out and blatantly criticize the president, but he's calling balls and strikes. And he's saying, How long are we going to go down this road when you got other members of Congress saying, Hey, let's give the president a chance? It looks like it's working, but the stats don't show. And then, you know, I want uh, Sam to kind of maybe chime in on this. I Man, when you have the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and Chamber of Commerce is all across the country lining up to oppose this president. On his tactics and his strategy to deal with the terrorists. I mean, he is losing a central part of the Republican base, particularly on this issue. I want
3: to thank you for that opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> Am I going to get a birthday present too? Yeah, uh, it's in the mail. So, um, my mentor politically has always been Senator Isaacson from when he was uh, in the state House, state Senate, congressman, senator. Uh, And I would say that his opinions are really close to mine, 99.9% of the time. I greatly appreciate his candor and, more importantly, his integrity.
1: So, Sam, we should be careful about this because although there are a lot of members of the Republicans in the Senate where where this has all started in terms of uh, uh, Republicans saying they're not going to support this, when push comes to shove, we don't know whether they're going to in fact line up against President Trump or not. They may very well fall in line and may not end up having as much distance from uh, David Perdue as this uh, article of Tamar suggests. Oh, absolutely.
3: I, you know, I, look, the president's already accomplishing what he wanted with having major elected officials from Mexico immediately flying over here to talk with him to see about what changes can happen. The threat alone may lead to significant change. Uh, but I think we've seen a long history of folks that pontificate, but then follow right behind the president.
1: Tamar, do we know, uh, the president has said June 10th is a deadline, that he will start imposing a 5% tariff under emergency an emergency uh, uh, act that he believes he has the power to use in this case. Do, do we know yet what kind of strategy the Republicans in the Senate, the Mitch McConnell uh, folks who are saying they are going to try to stop this? What kind of tactics and strategy they'd adopt? Would they immediately bring something uh, to the floor, uh, a vote to the floor to oppose this? What, what's the next step on this?
0: McConnell hasn't laid that out yet, but one thing I do know is that they're you know they're gone for the week. They they left early to go. A lot of them are going to the the D-Day festivities in in Normandy tomorrow, so they don't get back until Monday. That'll give them some time to see are these tariffs indeed going into effect, and then they file a resolution of disapproval um, and can get moving from there. But we don't know that yet. There's one other point I want to make about Johnny Isaacson. You know, while he did have lots of critical things to say about this particular round of tariffs, one thing. We do not know yet is how he will vote on this resolution mm-hmm. of disapproval yeah, right. classic johnny isaacson yeah. technique not you know he doesn't want to kind of you know show his, uh, play his mm-hmm. cards yet um and, and you know it's very possible that that despite his opposition he could end up backing up the president we saw this during the border emergency um you know back in february march where he expressed you know deep reservations about the president expanding you know using his power to to do this but he also voted to uphold the president's authority, so we really don't know yet.
4: That's exactly what I was going to ask you t- tomorrow because he he's critical of of the terrorists, but he did not also say he was joining the opposition movement. Um, one more thing, too, I, I've been getting calls from friends. Who, who rely on, on imports from one of my friends owns a tequila company and was saying he would literally be put out of business because he can't, he can't compete with the big guys. And so th- this, was, this could have a dramatic impact. Even a 5% tariff, if it doesn't go all the way up to the 25% tariff that it could potentially go up to, will have a dramatic impact on small businesses.
2: yeah And for our listeners and viewers, I mean, Mexico is the second largest partner when it comes to trading in, for Georgia. So, so, Bluestein just laid out that beyond tequila companies, and I need to try some of that tequila, uh, by the way, uh, Bluestein. So let's we're, visit. we're too old to be interested in tequila. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but therein <laughs> lies the challenge. Where I think the Georgia message at a time where you have Republican uh, members and Democratic members can't agree on relief for our agriculture community, our farmers who would hit hard. Now you're basically, if this goes through going to eliminate their, the second largest partner. We rely on these transport and these, its export uh, in the state. So therein lies a messaging problem, I think, for the right.
1: All right, let's do this. Let's get the first break of our show out of the way, because when we come back, I want to shift gears entirely. We haven't spent time talking on this show recently about developments in Georgia elections, people who are running for 6th and 7th District uh, Congress, other races. So let's do this. Let's take a break and come back and reset the stage for the congressional races that we're all going to be paying a lot of attention to in the months ahead.
2: This is Political Rewind. Now is the perfect time to clean out the garage and get rid of that car you no longer need. You'll face the coming months with a fresh start and by donating your used car to GPB, you'll even get a tax deduction. Call 877 GPB1CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org/cars. And thanks.
0: Schools and offices across the country run active shooter drills to help people prepare for a real emergency, but they can have
3: unintended consequences. When the Parkland shooting happened, a lot of the teachers weren't sure whether this was a drill, which they have been having unannounced, or a real event.
0: I'm Audie Cornish, weighing the value of realistic shooting drills this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News.
1: 4 till 7 today on GPB and gpbnews.org. Greg Bluestein, Theron Johnson, Sam Olin's here in the studio in uh, Midtown Atlanta. You can watch them on Facebook Live. Just go to the GPB News page on Facebook to do that. And Tamar Hallerman joins us. She's up on the Hill today for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Greg, uh, I guess the big story in terms of uh, candidates for congressional races, especially the 6th and the 7th, comes tomorrow when State Senator Renee Unterman uh, announces officially what everyone has known for a while she was going to do, she's going to run for the Republican nomination for the 7th District Congressional seat, uh, being vacated by Rob Woodall, who said, I've had enough.
4: <laughs> and can you blame him? No. Um, and she's one of I think it's almost ten candidates now who are running from both parties, but she's the most prominent Republican because right now the Republican side of the race is mostly outsiders, newcomers, people who haven't who haven't sought higher office before, um, business people. She, of course, is a long long time veteran of the of the Georgia Capitol. is a nine term state senator. was in the state house before that, and really one of the more influential people. Under the Gold Dome, but what she's going to be most noted for in this campaign is being the chief sponsor in the state senate of the anti-abortion heartbeat law.
1: So, what's interesting about that, Tamar, is that if you're running in a Republican primary in the seventh district, it probably is a, a, a an advantage to talk about the leadership role you took in getting that bill through the state senate. But she's also been the chair of the health committee in the Georgia Senate, and we know that. Talking about health care and how you might want to expand health care can also be a very powerful issue to winning elections in uh, in Congress. And yet we're going to watch Renee Unterman make uh, abortion, uh, the the bill that all but outlaws abortion, the showcase piece uh, for her. What do you think about that?
0: I mean, this is the story driving headlines not only in Georgia but across the country. It gets people riled up. It gets donors riled up. Um, you know, that's that's a big deal when you're trying to distinguish distinguish yourself in a giant field.
3: Sam, so the, look, there's only two issues that are going to matter next November. Uh, one are the various abortion bills around the country, and two is who's the Democrat nominee. Mm-hmm. Uh, all we have to do. I, I'm gonna.
1: I'm gonna stop you for a sec, and okay. I apologize because I don't mean to single you out. Every time we have a Republican uh, guest on the show who calls says uh, who the who's going to be the p- candidate for the Democrat Party, we get concerns because people say it's the Democratic Party. Calling it the Democrat Party has become sort of a pejorative way of referring. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't mean to so- give you personal grief about but you're a man of compromise and you know bipartisan harmony.
3: Nor was I being pejorative. Okay you know uh, <laughs> you know look last November uh, the name of the candidate was irrelevant for state House and state Senate seats. It was all whether you were an R or a D yeah. and I anticipate next November the name of the candidate on the ballot will similarly be irrelevant. It will be whether you have an R or a d you'd have to go back a long way to think of when the candidate's singular positions or personal background mattered
1: do you i'm just curious which part of the which which of the counties in that 7th district anybody can answer this has a more powerful voting block is it the, is it the more republican Forsyth, or is it the more populated Democrats in Gwinnett? How does that break down? I'd go
4: with Forsyth because there is no single candidate from Forsyth right now on the Republican side. So all the Republicans are from Gwinnett County. So if a candidate from Forsyth emerges and can and can be a unifying figure and get most of those, they won't get all of them, but most of those Forsyth County uh, votes, then that candidate has a very good shot of making the runoff. And by the way, if Sam's theory holds. And that the election will just be, you know, people going into their camps. That's why these primaries are so important, because those will decide. uh, That's where a lot of these issues will get hashed out a little bit more.
2: Theron, you want to weigh in on this? So I think what's interesting for, for our listeners and our viewers, and I want to make sure we crystallize what's about to happen. You know, the 7th District is a purple district. It is a, not a solid, solid, uh, uh, securely read, solid... Closest
4: uh, U.S. House race in the nation last in the country.
2: The, the closest U.S. House race. I mean, Carolyn Rodot, I think roughly around 500 mm-hmm. votes, was this close to flipping another congressional seat because let's not forget the Democrat, Lucy McBeth, beat Karen Handel in the 6th District. I slightly disagree with this. I think that Renee Utterman, who I've worked with, I know Sam has worked with her at the Capitol and, and is a very fair Republican Uh, Person in leadership, you know, may not always voted the way I wanted her to vote, but at least she was very um, uh, Showed a lot of empathy and would listen and so if she becomes the nominee for the Republican I think that you're gonna see Democrats sort of just use the heartbeat bill as a central part of the debate in that district and Lord knows if we do not get a decision on Roe V on the federal level and they're still and this bill becomes law and then you get into this whole, uh, which Michael Thurman talked about on the show, where DAs are not in first enforcing the heartbeat law. I mean, this is going to be front and center. If Renee Utterman is not the nominee into what Bluestein just talked about is that she's going to have to spend an enormous amount of time in others in Forsyth County because even though her district in Gwinnett, while it is conservative, it's not as conservative as some of the other uh, Senate districts. And so I believe that How she runs her campaign, she's got a lot of good people that we know, a lot of our friends are on her campaign. How she starts her campaign and what the messaging is going to be. Is it going to be, hey, I want to blow away this Republican primary, or am I preparing myself for a more moderate message to basically be able to win in November? I think that's what I'm waiting to see from the Utterman campaign.
1: Sam. There are so many Republicans in that race. Um, how, how are voters—maybe what, what Greg is saying is true. Maybe geography will have a role in all of this. I mean, how are how are Republicans going to decide on a candidate up there?
3: I, I mean, candidly, there's too many that are going to be in the sixth, too. Yeah, oh, absolutely. So, I mean, by, by definition, I really—these elections are national now. They're not local. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, you've got— uh, Money is, of course, significant. You know, the mailers, the TV, etc. But let's face it, it's all going to be. Are you on the side of the president? Are you on the side of the Democrat nominee? It makes a huge difference whether Joe Biden is the nominee as compared to Elizabeth Warren in the state.
1: Yeah. if Greg, if one of those socialists... You know the Democratic <laughs> socialists out there gets this uh, nomination that the Republicans could uh, have a field day in the, in the seventh district race. Well, I'm of talking course, about the presidential sure,
4: nomination. but one of the stories of of <laughs> last year's election was the was the Democrat success in the suburbs, which tend to be more moderate. And Quinette County went from a Republican stronghold to one that Abrams won with fifty seven percent of the vote. Your home of Cobb County, Mr. Olin's went solidly blue too. Um, and so you're right, so who, so having someone at the top. The ticket who is more palatable to more moderate voters in the suburbs will play a big factor. And That's why these these primaries are so interesting too, because you talk about the Democratic side where you do have candidates running uh, much more progressive strains uh, for their campaigns, and you have Republicans who, almost to a single person, um, have campaign launches that focus on painting Democrats as a as, as as a socialist a- AOC's right. democratic socialist that all right. like
1: all right meanwhile tomorrow we've got a new candidate a woman is it in the 6th district i've i've got to be honest with you i'm sitting here trying to remember names <laughs> do you know who the new candidate is who's well there there are uh, yeah, two new ahead.
0: female candidates in the 6th district who have emerged in the last week or so we have Nicole Roden ah uh, yes Nicole Roden um, yeah. a a uh, merchant marine and a merchant marine veteran, I guess no merchant marine, a former and, merchant marine, and also I think <laughs> naval
1: reserve, right?
0: Naval reserve, yeah. yeah but a, a political newbie who's who's come forward, who's who's been talking about, you know, she's she's the daughter of an Ecuadorian mother, and talking about bringing new voices to the Republican Party. You also have a, another woman who stepped forward this this week, Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, a, a business owner from Milton, who's, who's talking a very very much a David Perdue esque yeah. platform of of cutting the debt, getting government spending under control, she's the, owner the of a government like a business.
1: I'm sorry, she's yeah. the owner of a commercial construction company that she, her father started mm-hmm. uh, something yeah, like 50 Taylor, years Taylor ago. Taylor
0: Construction, she, yeah, which, which uh, became known, I guess, from Neil Bortz's radio show. They were a huge sponsor of that over the last, uh, you know, back when he was in business.
4: <laughs> and, and close family friends, too, by the way.
1: Oh, is that yeah. right? Uh, she is running, a, Sam, she's running as a fiscal conservative. She's going to balance the federal budget if she gets to Congress.
3: And and we all know, Bill, that the newest members of Congress can't even decide what type of paper towels should be in their office, let alone how to balance the budget. You don't even even have the power to decide. Don't, Don't even have the power to decide. So watching these folks say they're going to come there and they're going to immediately change Washington is akin to cut me a break.
1: Yeah, Karen Handel's still the the favorite in that race, isn't she, uh, to win back that seat? I'm not saying in a general she's the favorite, but in the GOP primary, Theron? Not necessarily. No, I
2: I think you can't count out um, my good friend Chairman Brandon Beach. um, No, that's right. Okay,
1: thank you. And
2: I I don't know if I help or heard him on radio (laughs) saying that he's a good friend, Um, but I think that he's going to raise a lot of money. I think he's going to basically be able to talk about the accomplishments that he was able to achieve as a conservative uh, member of the state senate who supported transit And who support other things And so But the one interesting thing Really quickly Bill I got to compliment The Republicans Sam The one thing that The Republicans don't have Is a shortage of candidates I mean you guys Have people coming out From all different walks Of the Republican Party But what we are seeing Changing in the Georgia Republican Party There's not sort of This ordained Hey you're next up Mentality You're starting to see A lot of these New outsiders Kind of emerge And say hey I want to run And I think to me that's a correlation of them being tired of what's going on in Washington. I think that they really feel like Democrats and Republicans are not doing what they need to do together for the American people. And so that primary is going to be one to watch. And and if these new individuals who are running, if they're able to catch fire on a particular issue in the six, we know that turnout turnout is going to be high. But I think that Karen Handel Knows that district very well. She's got enormous amount of name recognition, but I would not count out Beach.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, uh, Greg, that Theron makes a great point. Brandon Beach, popular uh, legislator from the area. Uh, I think somebody who could be palatable to Democrats and Republicans if he made it to the general election. Because his focuses on
4: economic development yeah. trends. It's going to be really interesting. It's hard to count on any of these candidates because they're all going to come in with some money. Um, they're all going to—the the three candidates who are Republican candidates running the sixth against— um, handle sort of, or are going to be focusing on handle and saying, "She's we've given her the chance. She she didn't win re-election. Why should we give her the other chance?" And um, on Taylor's uh, on that fiscal conservative promise that we were talking kind of joking about earlier, um, she will exploit or she will seek to exploit Karen Handel's vote on the budget, which she said she would have voted against. And so we'll see if that issue resonates among a, a very conservative.
3: Oh, I, group. I'm not debating at all whether that issue goes in her favor. I'm simply debating once you get yeah. there, you then have the problem of delivering. Yeah, exactly.
1: Is exactly. Brandon, is Brandon only male? A backbencher <laughs> who's like 428th in seniority in the House. I'm sorry, Theron. No, I ahead. was asking
2: a question is if Chairman Beach was um, the only male thus far in the race. And I think he is. I'm not I'm not necessarily sure. But let's say that he remains the only male. I mean, the women vote there, I think, will be split. Yeah. And we know that the 6th District, we talked about on the show, is one of the, I think, the most educated district in georgia um and so he may be able to appeal to a lot of these business owners and a lot of these moderate republicans up there as well
1: all right um let's take a let's no let's keep going and we'll take our break in a couple minutes uh let's move on to the legislature for a couple minutes greg uh i think you wrote this story initially the state democratic party has created a new organization called the what the majority project
4: yeah, it's actually not from the state party. We're speaking of the six it's from a a, a a former Sixth district candidate, Bobby Capel.
1: Oh, he's actually mm-hmm. the one who put this together. He's the one who put gotcha. this
4: together, and he's and it's it's not a super PAC. It's it's more of an independent expenditure group, um, but it will start raising money to defend some of those vulnerable Democrats. There's a handful of very vulnerable Democrats, and then go after the even bigger number of vulnerable Republicans. Particularly focusing on those still in the close-in suburbs who won their seats by less than fifty-five percent.
1: They need uh, what sixteen seats to turn if they want to uh, win back a majority, which they have not had since two thousand three, I believe was the last time. Yeah,
4: right? they're being realistic. I mean, the Senate is 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 very unlikely to flip next cycle. Um, those those districts are bigger and they're much more kind of set in. But the House, as we saw when Democrats took. Uh, a net total of 11 seats in the House, and they flipped two in the Senate, Um, the House is a lot more volatile, smaller districts, more candidates. And so they're going to set to work on recruiting candidates. And they, as we've heard, this is like a common refrain, but they are focusing on the outrage over the heartbeat bill.
1: Uh, Well, that's right, Farron. The heartbeat bill seems to have given Democrats something they really are energized around. But it's also going to energize the pro uh, life forces too, right?
2: Absolutely. And, and big shout out to, to Bobby Capel, who's a former reporter with CBS um, uh, 46, and, and is a guy who ran unsuccessfully, who really tried to make health care a central part of his campaign, but I think that unfortunately he wasn't able to get done. But if you for those of us who know Bobby, one of the things he talked about a lot Bill and, and Bluestein was about how even if he didn't win, he wanted to stay active in Georgia. And so what you see is you got a very credible guy who was unsuccessful in running for office, but now he's going out and going to raise money. And and I, I think that, let's give Bob Trammell an opportunity in, uh, for a lot of praise here because um, he was a person who came in one, a, a beat Carolyn Hughes, who a lot of people thought was going to be the next up uh, to succeed uh, the then-leader Abrams. And he made it a point to really go out and, and get these seats. But also, one thing that I'm very proud of for our Democratic Party is that we now understand that it's not only about having a message. We've got to recruit good candidates, and we got to put money behind them. And so I think Republicans are preparing for a lot of money, a lot of messaging, a lot of independent expenditures to be in these very strategically targeted house districts around the state
1: just to be clear for our listeners bob trammell the minority leader Correct. in the state house uh sam is the same thing applied to legislative races that you think applies to the congressional races it's a question of r or d and is trump how popular is trump at the top of the ticket or is it more localized
3: all i have to do is say one name deborah silcox this is a very bright woman Very well-spoken, very knowledgeable on the issues. Republican. Republican, Sandy Springs, voted against House Bill 481, the abortion bill, and uh, clearly uh, is in danger, despite the fact that she voted against the abortion bill. So the answer is yes.
4: And what was telling to me is shortly after she voted against that bill, the state party—this is different from the initiative we were just talking about—the state party unveiled its— what they call the blue initiative to yeah. target Republicans. And on that list, there's many Republicans who voted for, for the heartbeat bill, but also Deborah Silcox, one of the only Republicans who voted against it. So um, there, there, there are Democrats who are circling the districts they know are winnable. And that's, she is the last Republican holding a legislative seat inside the perimeter.
1: Wow. Tomorrow, I want to take up one other issue fairly quickly before we have to get to a break. And that's this uh, new policy of the D C which has now said, DCCC, of course, being Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, responsible for getting Democrats elected to uh, the U.S. House. And uh, they've now established this policy in which they are blackballing consultants, political operatives who go to work for challengers running against incumbent Democrats in congressional districts around the country. That, Tamar, seems like a draconian measure that can only backfire. What's your take?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I mean, I I think the fear uh, there was a ton of fear after Joe Crowley lost in New York last spring. To AOC. This is a guy- to AOC, and he was a guy who was seen as, as Nancy Pelosi's successor, the, the speaker-in-waiting. And I think that sent shudders up the spines of a lot of these incumbents who were, were nervous that, you know, they'd been there for a long time, thought their future was was set. And so you can see why, you know, the DCCC was under a lot of pressure. At the same time, it presents a huge philosophical issue for the party. You know, they, they talk about wanting to raise up people of color and women, and they, they feel very accomplished by the diversity of the the freshman class this year. But, but the criticism of this policy is that it would, you know, it, it would make it harder for women and people of color to, uh, of cor- to be able to win.
1: I apologize, Theron. And of course, right here in Georgia, Michael Owens running a- against... Um an incumbent, David Scott in the 13th Congressional District. We mentioned on the show the other uh, day that um, I reached out to Michael and said, are you feeling the impact of this? And he said, yes. He said there have been a number of national consultants who we thought might be interested in coming in and working with us. They're not now, uh, they've dried up. And he said, fortunately, we wanted a local consultant. In any case, that that may be true, But what do you think of this policy? Yeah. You
2: know, this is something that actually and and I want to start off by saying the D triple C has done a phenomenal job. I mean, I remember when I was working for Congressman Barrow before he became a member of Congress, when we were running against Max Burns over in the 12th district. And it was the number one seat for a Democrat to pick up in the entire country. And the D triple C played a pivotal role. Uh, in his election uh, congressman lewis all the people who i've worked with here in georgia but this is where I, I take a slight different tone as a consultant myself bill is that i think that when you look at people like michael owens um who has decided to run again against an incumbent that incumbent no matter he or she who or who they are should be protected by C, and they should have a list of consultants that they have worked with successfully. But here's where I draw the line. You can't tell these consultants that they can't make the choice to go and possibly support a person, whether they're a person of color, male or female, or not, to run against an incumbent. And so I think to put it in writing and to actually try to put this policy forward, when it's been sort of inferred and understood for so many years that you would do that. And so so tomorrow just really hit on something. What you're going to find now is if if these people are unsuccessful, and I want to be very clear because I know Congressman Scott listens to the show, I'm not saying that Michael Owens should get all these consultants to go over yeah. and run a good campaign to defeat him. I'm not saying that at all, but I do think that the DCCC should have the first um, look at national consultants that they've worked with to protect the incumbent, but don't discriminate, don't put a policy yeah. in place that that prohibits these challengers for at least having somewhat of a shot to make a choice about consultants that they wanna work with. One last word on this. Uh, Sam, uh,
1: this is inside baseball in most ways, but I think if I were a Republican, uh, trying to figure out messaging for uh, Republican campaigns. The fact that the DCCC is discouraging the open process of electing anyone you want to your seat in Congress, they're imposing this kind of rule that's going to hurt the challengers. I think that's a message that goes beyond the inside baseball nature of this.
3: It's sort of similar to superdelegates. You know, I mean, by <laughs> yeah. de- by definition they are embarrassing themselves at the expense of the incumbents and oh by the way a lot of these incumbents are white men and it's a lot of women and minorities that are seeking younger folks to succeed in that democratic primary and, and i think it's only going to hurt them last word Greg. yeah
4: i'm paraphrasing this but michael owens response was basically like I, I i get this if it's a very competitive district but if it's a solidly blue district why is the C doing this because either way in a district that Hillary Clinton won, I don't know, 70% plus of the vote in, a Democrat will be the the, the, the next congressman or congresswoman in that district. So his point is he's concerned that this is that this is playing out in, in deep blue districts. All
1: right. Let's do this. Let's get in a quick break. When we come back, it's about time to talk a little bit about presidential politics.
0: On the next Fresh Air. How do you forgive someone who hits your husband with their car and then
3: drives away, leaving him to bleed to death on the side of the road? How do you forgive that?
0: We talk with Christina Applegate, who stars as the grieving widow on the Netflix series Dead to Me. She played the daughter in Married with Children and co-starred in Anchorman. Join us.
1: Fresh air is this afternoon at 3 here on GPB and online at gpbnews.org. My name is Peter Broadhead. My wife and I own Brighter Day Natural Foods Market in Savannah. We've been in business. This will be our 40th year. We are a natural foods market. We've been underwriting with Georgia Public Broadcasting and it's been very, very effective. We're reaching people that are very thoughtful and just want to get more in-depth information. So when our name comes up, they're in that thinking process and they're not tuning us out.
0: To find out more about becoming a corporate sponsor, email sponsorship at gpb.org.
1: It's presidential politics time. Greg Bluestein. you're going to be busy. We have, what, four Democrats coming into Georgia, which says a lot about uh, the fact that people think the state's in play.
4: Yeah, four candidates. Um, uh, former Rep. Beto O'Rourke is having an event tonight that we'll be at. And then tomorrow, uh, three others, Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, former Vice President Joe Biden, and Senator Cory Booker. The Senator Booker's been here many times, and, and, and Buttigieg went to Plains, but that was a bit But for the other two candidates, this is their first you know, official visit to to Georgia um, since jumping into the campaign.
1: I, you know, I, okay, I want to do something. I've been trying to get this on the show for more than a week now. Give me just a moment, and then I'll open it up to all of you. The New York Times published a really terrific article more than a week ago. Uh, the, the the headline was, how much political experience does it take to be elected president? Uh, Sam Mullins, they listed uh, various positions. Senator, there have been seven senators elected to the U.S. Uh, to, to as president of the United States, most recently Barack Obama. House, if you run for president that out of the house two of them the last one in 1888 which who was garfield james garfield governor 10 governors that seems to be the job you want to run from it's conventional wisdom but the times shows that it seems to be true the most recent uh, george w bush in 2000 there's never been a person who ran as a mayor made pete judge, uh, a little cautionary tale there, uh, only one with no political or military experience, Donald Trump in 2016, uh, six cabinet members, five vice presidents, most recently George H.W. Bush, and general officer in the military, four of them. Most recently, Eisenhower? Dwight Eisenhower. Good, Blustein, 1952. It's a, we ought to send out a link to this article because it's really an interesting look at what it takes to get elected president. So let me throw it out to you all with the time we have left. And Theron, you're the Democrat on the panel. How the heck? Did we got the first two debates coming up end of the month. Mm-hmm. How are we going to sort through this field I mean, all of us is, as Americans, we're going to, you know, watch the election unfold. How are Democrats going to sort through it with 22 people running for president?
2: Well, one thing to also add that, uh, let's not forget, Cory Booker is a former mayor from Newark oh, uh, as well. Oh, thank you. And yeah. Bernie Sanders is a mayor. And, and, yeah, I and Bernie Sanders as yeah, well. Yeah, but they haven't
1: been elected yet. They haven't, that, the but, point but, of
2: this is no mayor has been <laughs> so far. No, no, I got you. And so, listen, I think it's going to come down to um, two things, Bill. Let's not forget there were a lot of African Americans all over the country that supported President Barack Obama, then U.S. Senator Barack Obama for his candidacy. I think overwhelmingly African Americans were supporting, him, but not, you know there was still about that twenty thirty percent that were staunchly behind Hillary Clinton. It wasn't until he actually won Iowa, where everyone then going into South Carolina said, "Oh my God! Not only can he win in a in a very very white state like Iowa." He can go on and to become president, and it's cemented his victory in South Carolina. I think we, no matter who it, the top three candidates, maybe top four candidates in Iowa, if one of them are either Cory Booker or Kamala Harris, uh, and I'm not suggesting they might win, I think they then have a really great shot at winning South Carolina uh, and, and Joe Biden as well. So I think Iowa is going to play a big role. The second thing is is who can actually prove to the American people that you have the best team, the best message, and the most money to defeat Donald Trump. And I think there lies where you see President Biden doing so, Vice President Biden doing so well. He has a great deal of support of African Americans. I think most people, when you talk to Democrats, they think that he's the best person to actually beat Trump in the general election. But, it all depends on how the placements go in Iowa and New Hampshire, then you go into Nevada and South Carolina. Yeah, I I, sh- and, and I think the overall message I'm trying to say is, I think to start, sort of, you know, like We look at it two weeks ago, three weeks ago, everybody was on Mayor Pete. Well, nobody's really talking about Mayor Pete now, right? I mean, he's coming to Georgia, he's getting some good people going. But now you're gonna see probably coming into the debate and out of debate, someone else is gonna emerge. And so it's just gonna be sort of this up and down flow up until we get to Iowa. Yeah,
1: tomorrow, I think what, what Theron just said is so true. I just personally refuse to get on these early bandwagons about how exciting candidate X, candidate Y is. I mean, we don't the American people don't at least with the big Field of Republicans in 2016, we knew the names and at least something about many of them. We don't know anything about most of these candidates uh, running on the Democratic side in 2020.
0: Sure, but it also shows the, the power of things like these town halls and these debates that we've been seeing on, on cable news. Mm-hmm. Nobody really knew who Pete Buttigieg was until a few months ago when he had the CNN town hall. Now he's considered in that top tier of candidates, so I think um, you know that'll be interesting to watch. Of course, continuing to watch things like the economy and the news that you know the big issues of the day that'll that could help determine who springboards to the top. But yeah, it's so early, and it's it's just nuts to think about how much could change between now and January.
1: Sam, does this give Republicans a little glee to realize this Democratic field is filled with so many unknowns, or or is it going to be more? Is it going? Is the competition going to make? Give Democrats a, a certain kind of energy?
3: now I think the latter, and, and, and I frankly agree with Aaron. I mean, I think it's all about who those top three, four are in Iowa. And let's face it, Iowa is a very special place. It's all about going to the the lunch place, the breakfast place, the the town halls. I mean, that's politics at its best at that local level. And, you know, I think if a, if a Booker, of a Harris, of a Klobuchar, Mm -hmm. surprising come in that top four or five their campaigns really have a a big jettison in addition to uh, Joe Biden
4: and as the local political reporter what fascinates me is how much attention we really are are getting not just the closed fundraisers which there are many of but the public events, we had Bernie Sanders go to Augusta. We've had three candidates make the pilgrimage down to Plains. We've had rallies in Gwinnett. We've had, rally, we've had a, a, tours of Ebenezer Baptist Church. We've had more than 13 visits from the top-tier candidates, and that's not including candidates that just came here for a scene in town hall and left. So we're getting serious attention. We got attention in the last cycle, too, before the so-called SEC primary. Or that was mostly right before the vote. Now we're getting it a year and a half in advance.
2: And we have become a huge ATM. We are the new Texas because for a long time in, in 2012, when oh. I was on President Barack Obama's campaign, we would go to Texas, San Antonio, Dallas, Houston, knowing we were not not going to win, knowing we probably were not going to even get close there. But we were raising millions and millions of dollars. And I think these candidates are not only raising money, but I would say this: many of them are here in town and they're listening. And the one thing I want to see, Blue, is when you leave here, how many people are you going to leave behind? How many resources? How many bodies? Yeah. What's the plan right. to really compete in Georgia? So that's what, important. I, that's what so I want important. them to do. All right. We
1: are virtually out of time for the show. I'm glad that we'll have an opportunity to talk about the visits of these various candidates on the show uh, uh, as the week proceeds. Uh, and Greg Blustein, will look forward to your reporting on this. Uh, tamar hallerman greg Bluestein, sam olins uh theron johnson i'm really glad you could be with us by the way theron johnson i always want to and then sometimes forget to mention in addition to your consulting work people can watch you on the georgia gang on sunday mornings at 8:30 on fox 5 and then they can immediately flip over because uh, we're back on tv this sunday morning at nine o'clock, so we'd love to have you. You all guys do a good job. I watch for that. Thank you, there, yeah. and I appreciate. Yeah, that. you do a good job. <laughs> and Lori Geary has become a great host yeah. of Georgia Gang, for that matter. All right, so that is it for us today. By the way, on Friday, a new real star of the Republican Party will be here. Congressman Doug Collins is coming in. Given his position as a ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee, he's become President Trump's most important defender against all the investigations they're trying to launch on the Hill. Uh, Collins will join us at 2 on Friday, and they'll, you'll be able to see that on Sunday morning at 9. Thanks for being with us. I'm Bill Nygut. Have a great evening.